This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. and we are here with special guest Dr. James Sterrett from DSE here at CGSC. Welcome, Dr. Sterrett. Thank you. So let's start by talking a little bit about your academic background. Um, you are in, in what I call our plus one of our five plus one um, here at CGSC. We'll, we'll explain what that means in a bit. But, but tell us about your academic background first. So the, the true lie, as I put it, is that I have a PhD in military history. The misleading truth is that it's a degree in war studies from King's. I did both my BA, my MA, my PhD, all were either history for the first two or the second one was done as a history project. So I, can, I self-identify as a historian. Okay, and uh, what's your academic specialty? My academic specialty is Soviet military history. I wrote my dissertation on the evolution of Soviet Air Force operational theory from 1918 to 1945, and uh, it's out there published if you need a soporific. <laughs> so what, um, explain then what DSE is and what you do within DSE. So DSE is the Directorate of Simulation Education. Uh, there's some history behind the naming and why it is that way when we have more than just simulations in it that we may not go into here. Uh, there's two things that DSE fundamentally provides for both simulations and for mission command systems, things like uh, battle command systems, computer systems that allow people to understand what's going on in the battle and to help control and command what's going on in the battle. So for both SIMS and MCIS, we are providing education on them to students and faculty, and we are supporting education using them for students and faculty. So depending on the week, it often seems, I am either teaching people, this is how you use simulations, this is how you design them, or it is helping somebody in the faculty, some department, some directorate, uh, use them in their education. So that's our, the two pieces of our core mission. Okay, and for, for a lot of listeners who may not speak Army, what do we mean by simulation? So going back to some base level definitions out of the Army Model and Simulation Office, which this time, uh, Army def definitions are not always great, but these actually are pretty good. A model is a representation. So it could be an equation that tells you how something comes out. It could be a thing you can hold in your hand. It could be a mental model. But fundamentally, the model is a representation. You could have a model that tells you if you fling a ball or an artillery shell, how does its motion get affected by drag and by gravity? A simulation is a model iterated over time. So going back to the example of the ball or the artillery shell, we can iterate second by second what happens to that shell and build out its trajectory and figure out where it's going to land. When we get into a game, we've taken a simulation a set of models iterated over time, and we've added decisions and goals. So now we've got players who are attempting to achieve ends. So if I've got a ball and I'm trying to throw it at Abel and he's trying to dodge, now we have got a game in which the model and the simulation are being used to figure out the outcomes. A war game, which is what we primarily deal with in the simulation side of DSE, is a game on a military topic. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Okay. So, uh, as we look at kind of the two sides of what it is that you do, both historian and in the simulations directorate, first of all, how did you get involved in this? How did you go from historian <laughs> studying the mid-century Soviet military to simulations directorate here? There are a couple pieces to the an that answer, and I, I think I'm going to give you many of them. So... <laughs> Part of that answer goes back to a guy named Tim Jones, who in a sense set the path of my life. At the school that I grew up at, he was a history teacher and he was a war gamer. 
And when I was at a tender young age, he would hire me to water his plants and pay me in war games. This was back in the 70s. And he was also a spectacularly good history teacher. So both of those, in a sense, put me on the path towards history. The, while I was doing my PhD, very early on in that in London, I did what my wife told me to do. She is also a historian, she, uh, specializing in the Victorian British Army, and she wanted to go to the Victorian Society Fair, which was going to have great costumes, to which my reaction was a yawn, and it would have Chinese Gordon's Ever Victorious Army's banners, to which my reaction was also a yawn, but they were a big thing for her, so I said, yes, dear, and, and we went. And almost the first thing we ran into when we walked in was a group near London who ran Kriegspiel, the original Prussian uh, military training tool war game. And we talked to them, we sat down, we played a game, we had a great time with it. And I did not go anywhere else in the display hall. I spent the day with them. She eventually wandered off to see the other things that she wanted to see and came back. We joined the club, they taught me to run Kriegspiel. And when we moved up to Glasgow, where she did her degree the next year, I started wondering, well, how can we run Kriegspiel on the then nascent internet? And one of the things that came up was the notion of running it through the now venerable computer game TacOps. And I wound up running a lot of TacOps Kriegspiels that amounted to, in fact, staff exercises uh, over the internet over the next couple of years. This and projects like it materially delayed production of my dissertation. On the other hand, the payoff came when through the TACOPS mailing list, I heard that the CGSC simulations division at the time uh, was hiring through Northrop Grumman. So it was a Grumman contracting position. And at the time I was waiting to defend my dissertation and realized, you know, military history positions are kind of thin on the ground and I'll never forgive myself if I don't apply for this. So I applied and they heard that one, I knew tech ops backwards and forwards, and two, even more importantly, that I had teaching experience and they wanted a teacher. So I got called in and the first panic for me on arrival was I was told, you're going to be teaching the FA-57 course and you have a week. <laughs> and I said, what? Because at the time, I did not know what FA-57 was. FA-57 is Functional Area 57. It's an Army career field in which officers, typically late in their captain time, shortly before they become majors, will branch off to become the Army's simulation specialists. And I, after a couple days, somebody figured out that the reason I panicked is I misunderstood. I did not have five days to prep the course. I had five months <laughs> to prep the course, which was a great relief. Uh, <laughs> since right. I needed most of those months to prep <laughs> that course. Uh, so that was in, I came here in October of 2004, and I have been teaching here ever since. So uh, a, a clarification definition, perhaps, by way of a question. In, in terms of what constitutes a war game, is risk a war game, and why or why not? So risk is a war game because it, it has models, it has decisions, it has competition, and it's on a military topic. And I am, you will find that there are people who are very persnickety about what constitutes a war game. That, oh, it must, if you go into the UK and you say war game, a lot of people will say, oh, it's a tabletop miniatures game because we are separated by common language. Uh, over in the United States and Canada, sometimes people will hear that and say, oh, it must be on a historical topic and it must have hexes and counters. I am much more of a big tent person in approach to this. Uh, I don't see that there's a great deal to be gained by saying oh, we are the one true holders of what is a war game and you are not. Uh, the place that I will tend to get snarky at people is that there's a tendency in the army to assume that war game equals step four of the military decision-making process, MDMP, which is supposed to include wargaming in order to analyze your courses of action. However, this is not only not the only use of wargaming, it is not the first use of wargaming. It's one that evolved later in the process of the existence of wargames. So you've now referenced a couple of times the, the history of the wargame as we recognize mm -hmm. it today. and You've also referenced Kriegspiel. Um, so could you walk us through a little bit of the early years in this kind of Prusso-German context of how the wargame evolved as a tool of military learning? Sure. Although I'm going to start 
way farther back. If we go way back in time, the earliest games often involve either essentially luck and gambling, or they involve things that seem to be intended to model warfare. So Go is a great example. Go, known as Baduk or uh, Wei Qi in China, uh, which is, depending on who you listen to, at a minimum around 3,000 years old, possibly another 1,000 or more years. It's a wonderfully elegant game, great design, and you can clearly see as you're playing through it that this is some kind of a struggle between highly abstracted forces. And it occupies a very similar position in East Asian culture to that which chess occupies here, in that it is assumed to be training for strategy, training for warfare, uh, good preparation for the mind. You'll find that many people from that part of the world will know how to play at the same level that many people in the Western world know how to play chess. It doesn't mean they're good at it. It doesn't mean they played it in the last 30 years. But somewhere as a child, they were taught the basic rules and they know sort of how it operates. And metaphors using it often will make sense to them or will be embedded in the culture. Right, like we use a metaphor in, in chess playing cultures like checkmate. Right, exactly. Right. And of course, chess is another South Asian game. And chess is a, the other great example of this, really. Coming out of India somewhere in the 600s AD, uh, checkmate is a fairly significant corruption of Shahmat, the king is dead. Uh, and as you get closer to India, the culture, as you move culturally closer to India, you find that the names of the pieces change so that by the time you get to Russia, the thing we call a bishop, they call an elephant, and so on and so forth. Uh, interestingly, chess originally was a four-way game with four sides all in competition and diplomacy between the sides was very important. And apparently this is in its own way, a much better model of a medieval field engagement in India. Uh, the rules for chess, as we know them, really solidified in the 1800s. A guy in London decided to run an international chess tournament and suddenly discovered that they had to agree on what the rules were. Right. So they codified the rules, and that's where the, the set in stone, if you will, chess rules that we know today come from. Mm -hmm. But either way, both of these are... They're recognizably intended to be military strategy games, but they're also, in their own way, pretty highly abstract. And in the 1600s, there began to be movement in Europe trying to make chess into something that was less abstract and more specific. And you sometimes see this referred to as war chess. Yes, or Königspiel, the king's right. game. Uh, and a lot of these would do things like change the spaces on the board so that they had specific terrain effects, or they would increase the board size radically in some cases, or both. They changed the pieces to be infantry and cavalry and artillery, but it's still also recognizably chess in that you're moving a piece on my side, a piece on your side, and evolving back and forth. Some versions of these seem to have been highly structured around understanding what troop formations meant and how they were supposed to be deployed. Uh, others were more of a combat. Working in the background here, and we're sort of taking a step back so that we can take the next step forward. In the 1600s, the Dutch invent the topographic map. And originally they are building it to understand the topography of rivers that they're going to dredge and canals they're going to dredge. So that's a much better way of representing terrain, more accurate way of representing terrain than the pure grid in chess. However, topographic maps are labor-intensive to make, having at one point in my teenage years helped make one. It's non-trivial to collect all the data and then plot all the points on the map and draw the lines and between them. And it's not easy to collect the data when you don't have laser rangefinders. Uh, which I didn't as a teenager. <laughs> when you have a string, it's a little harder. <laughs> well, typically it's, it's a metal. Yeah. It's called a chain, but it's a strip of metal mm -hmm. marked off so that it doesn't expand and contract under pulling the chain. This is a big problem for the French when they're doing their surveys in the 18th century because you can't quite do that around Corsica. Yeah. All right. So because they were difficult to make, the labor got expended on the places where it was both most useful and inevitably, therefore, most valuable, which is in the construction of fortresses. And this is the Vauban era of star fortresses, where, at least according to Vauban, to some extent, as far as I know, validating practice, you could figure out more or less to the day how long it was going to take to make a practical breach in the wall and convince the garrison to surrender or not. 
Whether or not this was mathematically true, the garrisons believed it at the time. And, and so did the besiegers. Yes. So as a result, and even without the math, the true or not math, knowing the layout of a fortress is critically important to being able to lay siege to it or defend it properly. And these were also massive expenditures of capital. The fortresses, in effect, were aircraft carriers of the day. So using the topographic mapping to get a really good map of the terrain so that you knew where to site the various, the various features of the fortress was important. Therefore, it was worth the effort. Therefore, this is where it was built. And you can still see some of these today in Paris at the, I'm blanking on the name. It's essentially the Museum of Maps. Museum that's, of that's Maps. That's the best yeah. way to describe it. There's a couple existent or rebuilt ones. Uh, basically, New Brysac is probably the best rebuilt level. Although, the one time I, I visited that, that fort specifically, and unfortunately, you can't see well enough, at least when I was there in the 90s, to see and understand the fortification. Yeah, you kind of have to see it from a drone shot. Which oddly, oddly enough, the best star fort to visit to see all the features is Fort George near Edinburgh, which is small and in some senses, you know, quote unquote, incomplete in that it's, it's fortifying essentially an isthmus. But it has almost all the features and the British army has maintained it. So it's in reasonably good shape and you can see the various bits and how they're supposed to fit together. Mm -hmm. So anyway, these, as a result, while topographic mapping exists in the 1600s, it's not really widely available to or in the mindset of people outside the very narrow topographic section and the fort units. So in the Napoleonic Wars, this changes and they become better known, they become more available, which I suspect is why you get the key change beginning somewhere before 1812 that the Reisvitzes, father and son, come up with the idea of saying, all right, let's break with chess entirely. We're going to use a topographic map we're going to have pieces that are to scale on the map. We will have a time scale. We will have a movement rate that is based on the time scale and the distance that these troops could reasonably expect to be expected to march on the map. And they put out the first version of this in 1812. They refine it further and eventually show it to the uh, von Buffling, the chief of the Prussian general staff in 1824, who famously, as the story goes, was very dubious about this Kriegspiel thing this war game, as it's being set up, they ask him for the general scenario, he gives them a scenario, and then as it begins to unfold, he apparently got more and more excited until finally he bursts out, this is not a game, it is training for war, I must recommend it to the entire army. And he does, he buys sets for every battalion in the Prussian army, which goes out and is immediately highly unpopular because the baseline original Kriegspiel, if you play it strictly according to the rules, is wildly overcomplicated and takes a lot of time to chew through and it's not really, it's not showing its full potential. What the Prussians moved to in what, what Mike Dunn, my co-conspirator in teaching here, and I strongly suspect is relatively short order, but we're not certain because it doesn't get codified for several decades, is that they moved to what the Prussians were calling free Kriegspiel instead of what they called strict Kriegspiel. And in free Kriegspiel, you rely much more heavily on umpire adjudication, much as you would find in something like Dungeons and Dragons, so a role-playing game, in that they treat the rules as a guideline and try to make things cook along quickly, because that way you're focusing back in on the, the people who are the players, the training audience. Which is and what an umpire would do in a field exercise, yeah. normally. Yes. So, to my mind, the central idea of a Kriegspiel is that you've got people who are sitting, typically when we run it here, they're behind little cardboard carrels sitting at their map. They can see on the map what their persona, which is marked on the map, could actually see. They're aware of what they would be aware of, and we're trying to put them in a place where, one, there's dense fog of war. We tell the reporting umpires, oh, the player's not your friends, don't tell them more than they should know. When in doubt, leave it out. Uh, partly because we're trying to avoid Stockholm Syndrome, which develops between the reporting umpire and the player. Second, as best we're able, we're trying to keep them under time pressure because that forces them to be able to make decisions in a timely manner as opposed to having forever to think about them. And 
you could quite rightly point out that both of these features are easily available in a computer game because computers can do fog of war and they can do keeping time cooking along pretty well. The thing that is the third thing that really wraps up the package is any order that you give to your troops in Kriegspiel has to be understood by another human being and executed by that person. So <clears throat> as the player, so if Abel is the player, he writes out an order for what he wants his forces to do. His reporting umpire takes it out to the master map table where we're showing ground truth. We figure out how long it takes to get to the troops who are supposed to execute this order. And then at the map table, we have to interpret his order and we move the troops. So it's not he picks up the piece and puts it where it's supposed to go. He's got to express his intent and try and convey what he wants to happen to troops who may well be pretty removed in time and space from his location, and he still wants them to get there. Mm -hmm. This is great practice for officers who also have to express orders that are understood and executed by human beings who have to be able to do what, they, what their boss has in mind correctly. So the Prussians found that this was quite useful. One of the great fans of it is Molka the Elder, who used it extensively and supposedly after 1871 when they'd crushed the French and everybody said oh my gosh what have the Prussians done we must learn from them and they typically pick up on two things one of which is the general staff which is why we're sitting today in the commanding general staff, staff college here and the second one is Kriegspiel and it gets steadily more and more implemented across various militaries the Molka's reaction to people figuring out the general staff was, oh well, so it goes. His reaction to them picking up on Kriegspiel apparently was, this is not good, now we're going to actually have to fight the next war. One of the things that people tend to learn from Kriegspiel about each other is, how do they react? So if Abel and I, a number of times, have commanded troops in a Kriegspiel and participated in the after-action review afterwards and discussed, you know, what did you do and why did you do it? He and I will start to learn why does each of us do the things that we do? How do we react to contact? How do we react to problems? Which means that in turn, until losses catch up with us and destroy this particular form of near telepathy, if we're out in the field and Abel runs into a problem and all I've heard is Abel has problem X, I can intuit, oh, Abel is going to solve the problem in this manner and I can help him by doing this and I'll show up in basically the right place at the right time, you know, assuming that the timing works out. Uh, and it requires far less coordination in order to achieve that, which the Germans at the beginnings of both world wars found to their advantage and as losses ground on and they couldn't do that training, found that that advantage wore away. So we now have this kind of foundation of Kriegspiel, and, and it tends to be confined to militaries, and particularly military staffs. Let's fast forward to the later 20th century when we have two important advances in gaming. One of those is, as you mentioned, computers, and the other one is the kind of repopularization of the board game, particularly what's, what's often referred to as the Euro-style game, um, particularly after 1990. So. How do those affect the pretty esoteric military staff training simulation that is Kriegspiel? And how does that become kind of the war game we know today? So taking them sort of in the order that you brought up. On the one hand, I have... <laughs> computers are both a blessing and a curse. Computers can handle a, lot of, handle a lot of data, they can handle fog of war, they can network people in disparate places together, all of which is really powerful. But computers also have a tendency to be treated by the people who are using them as the magic oracle, and you cannot see how they get to their outcome. As a result, because it's hard to learn how it works, people tend to treat them as a magic black box, and they put orders in and hope that they get a good result and when they do it's because they were geniuses and when they don't the computer stuffed them. It's a slot machine. Right. And that's ultimately actually not really useful because the thing that many armies sort of forgot in the 1990s is that there is in a useful sense only one place, in the war, place that wargaming actually occurs and it's not inside the computer chip and it's not on a table it's inside your skull. 
because that's where the understanding comes. And, and this is the era of generation warfare and offsets and where everything is technological. Absolutely. So we are still, in a sense, struggling with that because there is still a tendency to assume that simulations must be computerized and war games must be on a computer. And It's fair to point out the background noise you might hear is the computers running in the simulations lab we're sitting in. So there, yes. is a, there is a computer aspect of A, a of room this. whose air conditioning and power systems had to re, be rebuilt to handle the sheer number of computers that we've got in here. Uh, we blew the power on several occasions <laughs> by running simulations. The, uh, so one of the things that happened in the early 90s, in particular in the US Army and in the Marine Corps, and this is not my direct experience, this is reported to me, is that a lot of manual wargaming systems that existed at the time were thrown out in favor of, or literally thrown in the dumpster, in favor of using newfangled computer systems. And the problem that came from this is that the accompanying knowledge of how to do a wargame went into the dumpster with them as the people who knew how to run them retired, went on to other things. Uh, and we are slowly trying to rebuild that, which is would be much more of an insurgency than it is if it weren't for the second thing you brought up. Uh, the board gaming in the 70s, 80s, 60s was in many ways a niche activity. Uh, once you got beyond the, the kids' game sort of stuff, and Jim Dunnigan, a famous game designer, called it the hobby of the overeducated. Uh, and part of that is that these games are, by their nature, complex. Think Monopoly. Monopoly would be simple. Yeah. It is radically simple compared to many of these games. So Monopoly, the rules fit on the inside of the back of the uh, box top, and many of the things coming out in the, uh, the 80s, late 70s, 80s, as I was becoming a wargamer, would routinely have 40 to 50 pages okay. of densely typed rules. Yeah that you, were, you would need to understand in order to play the game. And, and the, the comparison I, I made there is a lot of people who play casual board games, the Candyland types that you mentioned was a hobby in, from mid-century, to them Monopoly is a complicated game. And, and what you're saying is that's very simple compared to a lot of the existing physical war games of the time. Yes. Okay. So that's a barrier to entry, inevitably. The, you don't want to read a novel to play a game? Well, I'm willing to read a novel <laughs> to play a game, <laughs> but not everyone is. The, uh, so in the 1990s, particularly in Europe, particularly in Germany, uh, there, there was a strain of games that were designed to be both good, meaning they would be, have deep decision-making and they would withstand a lot of repeated play, and be fairly elegant, so that the number of rules is fairly small while generating this. And arguably the first breakout hit of this is Settlers of Catan, uh, <clears throat> which people can be taught relatively quickly, but then they find that you can play it over and over again and there's still depth in it, partly provided by the interaction of the players, but partly simply provided by the, the nature of the system itself is, is not simply solved. The, the explosion of these, particularly initially in Germany, also coincided with a economic downturn in the 2000s. And friends of mine in the board game industry pointed out when that economic downturn occurred that economic downturns are good for board game sales. Because if you are looking at your family budget and you could spend 50 bucks to take two people to the movies, or you could spend 50 bucks to get a board game that you at least assume you will then play multiple times. People say, oh, let's get the board game. We'll be able to play that and it's more value for your buck in, the, in, in entertainment. The third thing that hit was the rise of Kickstarter. And there are earlier versions of Kickstarter. In effect, the first one that I know of comes from a war game company called GMT. There was, I don't think we want to get into the history of tax law, but because of a tax law change, there was a slaughter of many both book publishing and game publishing companies in the early 90s. GMT survived it through the innovation of what they called the P500 system. 
where if 500 people said, I will order this game and gave them the credit card number, which wouldn't be charged until it was actually shipping, then GMT would go ahead and publish the game. So that's essentially pre-Kickstarter. It is a pre-Kickstarter Kickstarter. And that became increasingly widespread across the war game industry because it means that your risk is tightly controlled. The funding is, at least the initial funding is up front. Right. Yeah. And the cheap part of building a board game is the design, and the expensive part is sending it to the printer and running the printing press. So they, they do the cheap part on spec, and then they do the expensive part when they've got enough enough pre-orders set up so that even given that some of the pre-orders will fail, they understand that that they will have enough to pay off the printing costs and make whatever profit they need to make and maintain the business. Uh, so it helped, certainly helped GMT survive and many of the other companies have moved to the system and did by, loosely speaking, the early 2000s. Kickstarter supercharged that because it brought that business model to the attention of all the other board game publishers. And for the board games, that is amazing. The other big change that came along with it is that I can produce with our fairly standard desktop publishing tools that we've got in the office, which admittedly includes a 36-inch wide plotter, which not everybody has. But other than that, many of the things we've got are available to anybody. Most of us can have a printer at home without much trouble. Well, especially now in the in the kind of world where dev tools are increasingly available and increasingly free. Which means that we can produce at home games that are of a quality that is often of a physical quality that's often better than what you could make professionally in the seventies and eighties. Especially as three D printers get better. Especially as three D printers get better. Yes. The so that's meant that in many ways we're in a golden age of board game design because the barrier to entry to doing the design and getting it heard of and put out to a public that might be interested is steadily plummeting, mm -hmm. which is, from my perspective, awesome. It means that lots of ideas come up, lots of new ideas have come up, and tying this back into the board game field, it means that increasingly over the last 10 years there have been techniques for mechanics in games that were pioneered in Euro games that are coming into the war games, and it's all to the good. It means that you find more elegant ways to model various phenomena, various things on the battlefield or in the campaign, so that you get the essence of the problem without having to get into the minutiae of the detail that leads to it when the minutiae is not important to what you're trying to do. Okay, so now we, we have a good description of the ecosystem. Let's talk about the application. And, and in the interest of disclosure, you and I co-teach an elective here that uses board games to, to teach various military uh, um, outcomes and, and skills. So kind of in, in a very general sense, what is the value of the war game to the mid-career officer here at CGSC? Fundamentally, what a war game provides is ersatz experience. And that's useful in a lot of ways. There's the inevitable Sun Tzu quote, right? That to the extent that tell me and I will forget, show me and I, I will remember, you know, involve me and I will understand. The, you know, the, the lab, if you will, version of that is that the war game is a lab. It is a let's go experience it. So in, and I apologize for referring to it as 681 because that's the course number, but that's what Abel and I teach together. Uh, I like to say of that, that the games that we have the students play allow them to walk 10 feet in the socks of their historical counterparts. All famously, George E.P. Box wrote on a number of occasions, all models are wrong, some models are useful. The practical question is how wrong can they be and still be useful? And this absolutely applies to the uh, historical games that we're running in 681. Uh, given that we've got three hours in each class, we're not going to run very immensely detailed and complicated games because they have to learn them as well as play them. So we're not really going to have them walk a mile in somebody's shoes. But 10 feet in their socks, they're going to start to have some understanding from the games we selected of the pressures and the dynamics of the battle or campaign and what their side was facing and what the other side was facing and start to come to a better understanding. The other thing that these are used for is instead of teaching history, is teaching other things about the military. So for example, we've got uh, simulations that we run for the exercises at the division level throughout the year, which are intended to give 
a backdrop of events and consequences for decisions which the students acting as a staff are then going to react to, see whether or not their plans panned out, and hopefully have some understanding of why they did or did not pan out the way they had intended so that they can build better plans in the future. Some of them are more specific. We had a game built for us by some Georgetown University grad students last year as an internship agreement on running a logistics effort for a future war against the Russians in Norway. And in many ways, the game is an odd representation of warfare in Norway because in order to focus on ground logistics, we eventually realized we had to throw out the Navy and the Air Force from the picture, which is really wrong for Norwegian warfare. Right. They're kind of important. Right. But in order to focus on the thing we needed, we needed to do that. And it wound up being, per both the logistics instructors and the logistics students who were using it, it wound up be being very useful as a exercise in the midpoint of the course where they've been studying how is logistics supposed to work at this you know, sort of mini theater level and then suddenly they're told hey for the next couple of days you're going to try and put these theoretical concepts into action in the game how do they actually work and then they go back to a more theoretical lesson level of how do you apply and generalize the lessons that you took from the game about how to apply the the theory so that you can provide better log support. So one of the things that we do, and, and I know you are a proponent of, is there's a model of gaming where it's two people sitting in a board playing a game. We like to put more people around a board and exceed the, the, the manufacturer number of players so that people are on teams. What's the value of having people be on teams when playing a board game? So typically when we're using teams, for every player position on the board, we are tr we like to put two people, two students, and there are some there's some further edge cases on that we can get to, but first, most of the time our play our students are playing the game for their first and potentially only time, so they are learning the game as they do it, and many of them are not gamers, so they're a little bit nervous or a lot nervous about what am I doing here? I don't understand this. And if you're doing that and you're all alone facing across against your opponent with potentially some minor reputational risk on the line, that's a pretty lonely and disheartening experience. So people often at that point will turtle up and shut down. If instead we give you a friend who's on your side, whom you're paired with, now you've got a battle buddy, they will remember things about the rules explanation that you forgot and vice versa. You've got somebody to talk about, hey, what do we need to do? How are we going to do this? And it seems to mean that students come out of their shells a lot more and they engage much more easily. The, the stealthy advantage of this is, as the instructor, it means that the player's thought processes are out in the open for you to listen in on, and you can be listening in and taking notes saying, ah, we should bring that up in discussion. I should ask you about this later and bring things up. Also, as the facilitator of the game, which often, you know, outside of the electives that I'm teaching in is what I'm doing, it's helpful to have people talking because it makes it easier for me to judge what's going on with this team. Do they need help? Because if somebody is sitting there on their own staring at the map, is that because they're confused and they don't want to show it? Have they made all their moves and they think they've told the other team they don't know? Are they just pondering deeply and there's something useful going on in their head that I don't want to interrupt? Uh, when there's two of them and they're talking, it's much more likely that I will have a good sense of that. And as a side note, one of the terrible things about running these online, which we did during COVID, uh, <laughs> is that it's even harder to figure out what's going on when there's radio silence from the student whose move it is because I can't see them say, hey, are, are you thinking? Are you lost? Are you done? Has and, your computer stopped working? Right. And all of those sometimes are the case. Right. So it, it's useful as, as the facilitator also to, know, to have that better sense of what's going on when there's more people. I mentioned that sometimes we have bigger teams. That's very much game dependent. If there's really one player position and everybody's controlling all the pieces on a side, two is very much the sweet spot. At three, somebody tends to be a third wheel, and in part it's a physical reaction, a physical thing because there's often only so much space at the table and the third person is sort of hanging back. And if there's one person who is inclined to hang back, they will do that and you know, off we go. On the other hand, there are other games where you can usefully break up 
a side into multiple player positions for a single player. So for example, one of the things that we use in 681 is Drive on Paris, which covers the opening stages of the war in the West in 1914. And we will break that up into four players per side, each with their own chunk of the front. So typically there are two players up for Schlieffen and the, uh, sorry, or uh, the drive into Belgium and Luxembourg. And then there's another German player who's sort of kind of Metz over to the Voskis, and then there's a German player for the Voskis, and over on the French side, there are three of them lined up at, across the front against the Germans, and then there's a fourth player who is the Belgians and the British, and they are explicitly told, you are not under the command of the French players. We retain the, the advantage of having teams, they've got somebody to talk to, somebody to coordinate, to speculate with, uh, and everybody has still got a significant job. So uh, we've kind of outlined that there, there are three very general ways to do this. One of those is the virtual way, which you've already kind of discussed the drawbacks of. Then there's the, the war game that maybe a lot of people have in their minds, especially if they haven't played many war games, which is the, the, the miniature figures on perhaps a, a terrain simulation table. And then there's the more um, board-centered type game. So leaving out the, the, the computer version, which we've already discussed, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the kind of mini system and the board system? The, the first advantage on each has their pros and cons, right? The first advantage of a minis game is that it is immediately visually attractive. People walk in and they see the minis and they say, hey, that's cool. You know, whether it's little tanks or it's formations of Roman soldiers or whatever it might be, now, if they're nicely painted and presented, that is, that's immediately appealing to people to play. The, we often figure, we being Mike Dunn and I, Mike being my partner in crime and teaching wargaming here, the, we often figure that the miniatures games come into their own typically at the tactical level, particularly when you're headed towards one thing on the map is either one, one piece, one miniature, is either one thing or it is a very small collection of things. Right, and an operational level minis game would involve probably tens of thousands of figures, right? It would, at that, in done that way, it would involve tens of thousands. Done another way, you declare representativeness and the one tank on the map represents a tank army. And that can work, but it's got some pitfalls as well. And one of the pitfalls that we've certainly seen on several occasions is that people will instinctively take the visual representation they are shown and interpret it as individual objects. There was a game that we were testing as a brigade level game being designed by one of the DTAC faculty a few years back. And he wanted to use miniatures, so he had individual miniatures for companies. And he had individual trees on the map to indicate where there would be forested areas. And again and again and again, people who were involved in the testing of this would say, well, I'm going to hide my tank behind this tree. And everybody else would have to remind them it's a tank company that is a forest. You're either at the edge where you can see and shoot out or you're not and you can't. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, oh yeah, and, they, and go back. And then they slide back in. And it's a natural human reaction. What you're looking at on the table looks like a thing behind a thing. I'm not a, a tabletop gamer, but if I'm, if I'm correct, one of the basic principles is what you see is what you get, right? Uh, depending on the system. But there's a reason that, that miniatures games have a real tendency to be either one thing or you know, this tank is a platoon, a small fairly contained contained force as opposed to a large abstracted force. Mm -hmm. The other common, and it's not universal, uh, thing that you get with minis games that is potentially a, a downside <clears throat> is that generally the data for the unit is not on the unit. The Heroclix system that uh, Jordan Wiseman came up with now nearly 20 years ago, uh, that makes me feel old, uh, <laughs> is very cleverly done so that it's got the unit data incorporated into the base and you can twist things around so that you get the data changing. But that's a fair amount of engineering to do to make it work. I think some of the, the space sim tabletops do some of that too, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I, I have played a couple that did have some of the data on the piece, but it's always unwieldy. Yeah. Whereas it's much easier to put 
a fair amount of data onto, relatively speaking, a fair amount of data onto a counter on the map. The other advantage that you get with the hex encounter area encounter games is that the abstraction is much more obviously an abstraction. And so people have a much less of a tendency to commit the mental error of my tank hide my tank company hides behind the tree, as opposed to hey I get it it's a tank company it's moving to this generalized area to get this this general outcome. Uh, between Mike Dunn and me, he is the minis gamer. I am the the hex encounter board gamer. Uh, there is often a great deal of disagreement between war gamers about which one is better. It can get completely stupidly heated. Uh, Mike and I have a great tendency to parody all of this in that I will point out to students that because he's the minis gamer, he has no understanding of higher thought or reason or abstra abstract, you know, abstract maths or whatever. And he will turn around and point out that I have no appreciation of beauty and basically a solos automaton and we drive on. But the, the wider point there is to point out that it's not an either or. It's not that one is uniquely superior. It's a matter of you've got to judge which one is going to work better for the system, which one is going to work better both in terms of presentation of looking good and also presentation of presenting the data that's needed to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and um, kind of along the same lines about the utility of the system. The, the title of, of 681 includes decision-making. It's case studies and decision-making. Why is that in the title, and why is that important in using a war game to educate officers? Fundamentally, what any game does is present you with a set of information. Here it is. Here's what's going on. Gives you the opportunity, it's often called the affordances, to make decisions about what your forces, your assets will do in the system some kind of model runs the system forward based on your decisions, the AI's decisions, other players' decisions, whatever it might be, and then presents you with a new set of information. If you're running a first-person shooter game, this may be happening 60 times a second. If you're running a more complex board game, then it may be happening, in effect, once or twice an hour. But nonetheless, it's the same thing. And at the key there, the thing that really tends to engage people the longest uh, keeps them coming back for more, is the fact that you're making decisions. And if we go back to that technical definition of a game, the thing that makes a game a game and not a simulation is that the simulation has decisions. You're trying to do things in it. And this is where a lot of the ersatz experience comes from. It's not simply, oh, I saw the movie or read it in the book. It's, I was put in a situation where with things that approximate the historical situation and approximate the historical pressures, I had to make a decision and try and achieve victory within it. One of the moments that I always think is fun in 681, one of the games we run is Napoleon 1807, which covers three of the campaigns in later 1806 and 1807 in and around Poland, and we run in particularly the Polotsk campaign. And Abel after the students are done fighting through this, often in a game that more represents blind, blind man's bluff than concerted actions as they try to figure out the essentials of Napoleonic operational maneuver, which is a challenge and the game presents it nicely. He will ask them, how many of you could identify at the beginning of the game where the crucial battles were going to occur? And they look at him and say, how the heck would you do that? And he then points out that, and I believe it was Fort Polotsk, Napoleon hears that the Russian army is on the move, studies the map for an hour or three, and says, concentrate the army here, because in two or three weeks, that's where the battle will occur. And there's a layer at which, admittedly, by Napoleon deciding to concentrate the French army there, he is leading events in that direction. On the other hand, there is nothing that forces the Russians to do what he wants. So it's a significant case of looking ahead and understanding the situation and conducting decision-making. And points that, in a larger sense, the things that war games will let you practice. So there is a model in the army, UVDDLA, understand, visualize, describe, direct, lead, assess, of what it is that leaders are doing. 
They have to understand the situation, visualize what's going to happen in the future. They have to decide what to do. They have to direct their forces to do it. They have to lead them through doing it. And periodically, they have to assess and potentially go back to making a new decision. And war games really tend to hammer on the understand, the visualize, and the assess. When we've got multi multiple players with some kind of a chain of command, then you begin to get into the direct and the lead. But really, it's those three, the understand, uh, decide, understand, visualize, decide, and assess, are integral to the process of playing the game. And thus, practically whatever game you are doing, you are practicing those skills. So, and one of the things we, we spend a lot of time in the class doing, as opposed to just running games, is the AAR after the game, where we ask the students, the players, we ask the students, the players, to describe what happened and if it met their expectations. Why is that an important part of this learning process? So be going out on a limb and making a statement that in a sense I both very much agree with and, and disagree with. Nobody ever learned anything from a game by themselves. And I'm now going to start disagreeing with this but, but explaining it. So simply the act of playing the game does in fact involve a certain degree of learning. You're learning the rules, you're learning how things work together. But really making that sink in, if you're playing it by yourself or with others, involves thinking about what happened and why it happened and attempting to draw lessons. And if you are playing on your own, you can be disciplined and work through that process. But it is certainly easier for people to do that if there are more people around, and particularly if there's an instructor saying, hey, what about X? Well, what did you think about Y? And starting to bring the experience into something that they've thought about and therefore turn from, if you will, data into knowledge. So one of the questions I would imagine you get a lot, and, and I know it to be true because you've told me so, is you know these are these are serious professionals who are engaged in what hopefully is not but inevitably will be a lethal trade war why are you having them play children's games what's your response to that <laughs> well what's the essence of learning in many ways the essence of learning is play and there's a there's a book that we have students in another one of my courses read by Rav Koster a theory of fun for game design and in many ways, his central argument, and the reason that I have them read it, is that the reason that people enjoy games is that they tickle the same reward center in your brain that learning a new skill does. And because you are fundamentally learning a new skill. There is a great presentation by a guy named Dan Cook a number of years ago in which he said, what would happen if we designed office applications the way we design games? Because his point was, office applications are a dreary march to learn how to use. Who would like to learn how to use mail merge for fun? And you can watch no hands rise in the audience. On the other hand, games are fundamentally an application, particularly on a computer, in which the, the user pays for the privilege of learning how to use your application. And when they're done well, they will find that they are kept in a zone where they're neither frustrated nor bored and they keep on learning and applying new tasks again and again and again. So if we can get games for the classroom where either the data or the tasks or the systems that they are learning by playing the game are relevant to instruction, then this is a win. Uh, a story I tell often about this is that my brother is alive because of a computer game. Back in the early 1990s in glorious, not very glorious now, but it was glorious then, four-color EGA graphics. There's a game called Life and Death, which was a surgery simulation. And you would get a series of patients with abdominal complaints. Well, my tummy hurts. And you would go through the diagnosis process, figure out what was wrong with them. And then if they had appendicitis or <clears throat> if you decided you wanted to practice the operation and since it wasn't real people, you misdiagnosed them as having appendicitis to practice, then you would go in and do the operation to remove their appendix. And the game was, in fact, uh, painstakingly realistic in most respects. One of the places that I was extremely relieved when I finally got to this point to discover they were not going to be fully realistic about is that 
when you are about to sever the appendix, you do this double noose knot on either side of the planned incision so that the least amount of infected goo leaks out into their guts. And fortunately, the game lets you tie that knot with a single mouse click. And that was an enormous relief <laughs> for me. But it was tracking things like, are you putting the right drugs in them at the right time? Is the incision straight? Did you leave things in the patient? You know, all of which, in the process of playing the game, you will turn out to be guilty of and learn, oops, don't do that, until finally you manage to remove the appendix and off you go. So my brother and I played this for probably about six weeks until both of us had done this, learned that we were maybe not cut out to be surgeons, and you know, went on our separate ways. A number of years later, so mid-late 1990s, my brother at the time was a farmer and had discovered that many anesthetics and painkillers didn't work particularly well on him, and he didn't like going to doctors. So most of the time, his solution for anything going wrong was, eh, sleep it off. But when he got a sharp stabbing pain in the lower right-hand quadrant of his abdomen, halfway between the hip bone and the pubic bone, that wasn't replicated in the other quadrants, when he pressed them, he said, oh wait, I played this game, I know where this goes. So he got himself taken to the hospital, where they you know, did the usual diagnostics, removed his appendix, and the surgeon said it was the most inflamed appendix he had seen in 20 years without it bursting. So if my brother had waited till the next morning, he'd probably be dead. So this is a total win, right? I still have a brother, and I'm very happy about that. The, and it's, it is essentially learning by engaging the problem again and again and again in a sufficiently realistic setting that the lesson sinks in. We can, being a little colder about this, ask whether or not three to six weeks worth of time, three if you split the time between us, was really necessary to drive that lesson home. And that's both the power and the, the failing of using games in the classroom, is that games are time intensive. You have to learn them, then you have to use them, then you've got to make sure the lessons have been drawn out. If you're going to use them as a repeated engagement with the problem the way we did, then you've got to, you've got to make sure that the problem is worth the time you're going to spend on it. And that is part of the challenge. When instructors come to us and say, hey, I want a game in class, we go through a model we call PDI, Purpose Decisions Interactions. And the first question is, what is the purpose of this event? What are students supposed to learn? What are they supposed to get out of it? How much time do we have? How many students will there be? All these sort of constraints. But the key thing is, what's supposed to be the outcome of this? And from that, what are the key decisions and dilemmas that students need to wrestle with in order to get at that purpose? And there's various ways that the, the event may get at the purpose. It may be an event that's at the beginning of class and is intended to get people thinking about it. It may be that it's going to be in place of a lecture, much like with the surgery game, you're playing it over and over and over again in order to gain the lesson. It could be as a test at the end of the class. And each of these will mean different things that the game needs to do. But fundamentally, if we can't drive the decisions that get at the purpose, then we're wasting your time by throwing something into the room. The interactions piece goes back to that model of what a game does, that it shows you a set of information, allows you to make decisions, rolls things forward, shows you new information. And that process in the game, for whatever it is that the game is going to show, needs to drive people to wrestle with the right problems so that they get at the purpose of the class. So why history games as opposed to games that may be set in a fantasy or sci-fi universe? Uh, in many ways, it's a matter of muggle defense. So there are some really good games that are set in not the real world that can teach some pretty good lessons about the real world. But it is often, usually, much easier to convince both students and our superiors that the game is worth using if it is recognizably either history, current, or near-future military operations. Uh, a counterexample of that is that in the past couple weeks we recently used Root and we used this with the School of Advanced Military Studies which spends its first four to six weeks looking at how do we do things like planning, how do people think, what are analytic tools we can use for problems in general. And in the past they have had the students then conduct a 
fairly standard military decision-making exercise, plan the following operation, here's the massive annex of data that you've got to work through, and students typically said okay and drudged their way through it, but they weren't terribly engaged and they would use the various planning tools when they were required to, but they weren't Sam's was not happy with the degree to which the students weren't actually engaging the problem and weren't using the tools they'd just been provided with. So last spring, the Sam's exercise director came to us and asked, well, what could we use that would do better? And he began by telling us that it needed to be both learnable and deep and fast enough playing that you could play through it in a couple hours and it wouldn't become stale over repeated play so they keep on finding new wrinkles in the competition and the game and we showed him a number of games that were historical or current saying would this work would this work would this work and as the discussion went on because every time he said well it doesn't work because x we would integrate that into trying to refine what's the thing you need. And we finally said, well, uh, there's this game called Root that is all the things you're describing, but it's got fluffy animals running around in the forest. And he looked at us and said, that sounds great. <laughs> so we brought a copy in and we played it with him. And that's that needs to be the next step in this process, that you've got to sit down and try the thing with the instructor to make sure that it really does fit what they're trying to get. So we played it with him, he was convinced, then we ran it for the SAMS faculty writ large, and they were convinced, and as a result, we wound up running it with students. And the faculty were very happy with this, because while the students were a little bit unsure at first, the game looks nice, so it's appealing, so you get a bit of buy-in, this is stitching back to the value of minis. The, and as play progressed, because all of the students played it at least five times, uh, we started seeing the whiteboards get filled and they were getting filled with the planning and analytic tools that they'd just been taught in the prior six weeks and they were using them well and they were using them to drive victory in the game and that as far as the SAMS faculty was concerned was an absolute win because the despite the fact that it's fluffy animals running around in the forest it's driving the students to the learning outcome that they wanted so that would be success. Okay, final question. What advice would you give someone who is familiar with board games, because that's, that's most people, maybe has played them as children or with children, maybe has played some of the modern Euro games, like you mentioned Catan, but doesn't know anything about war games? So you're looking for advice on how to move into war games? Yeah, or? if they're interested, what should they do? Uh, a couple pieces of advice. One of which is to, if you can, find a local wargaming club or wargaming convention. Despite rumors, typically those are fairly friendly and they've gotten friendlier over the years to new people. The second thing I would do is worry less about game complexity and more about games on a topic that interests you. Because a simple game on a topic you're not interested in, you're never going to get very far with. A more complex game on a topic that you think is nifty you will get much further with it also helps that a topic you're interested in you've probably got a mental model for how it works which will make the game in fact simpler as long as the game more or less matches your mental model note in that regard that many war games will have designers notes written up in the rules or a separate book that comes in the box which will explain how the designer approached the problem and why they did things the way they did, which will also typically help in understanding the game or updating your mental model, or may t lead you to say, you know what, this game is completely wrong, I completely disagree with the thesis of the designer, let's find something else. Uh, don't worry about learning the rules all in one bite. Uh, typically, the first play through any of these is somewhat rough as you figure out how things work. It is very useful to put the pieces on the map and start banging them together to see what happens, read through the rules, check things as you don't know them. If you can find somebody who already knows the game, that is a great way to learn. Most people, in fact, learn more complex games by being taught them by other people instead of learning them by, uh, by reading the rules flat out and grinding through that and learning the game. 
There are increasingly frequently there are videos on YouTube that will have to help that process in which somebody teaches you how to play the game. It's often the designer. Often the designer. Uh, there are those may run long. You're warned, but they often provide you with an effective introduction to how things work. Uh, last but not least, I would check in on the game site on Board Game Geek. Board Game Geek is sort of Wikipedia for board games, and the forums for a given game are often full of questions other people had about how to make the game work, or there will be play aids that people made, or here's how to learn the game things that people made, which often will help a great deal. Okay, this has been a fascinating discussion. Dr. Starrett, thank you. Hey, thank you for having me on. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.